to the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Groups podcast for all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. I am your host, Brittany J. Harris, Vice President of Learning and Innovation, and I am excited to leverage this medium as yet another opportunity to facilitate dialogue, shift perspectives, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. This season, we are demystifying internalized oppression. Today for this episode, I am joined by none other than Mary Frances Winters, our leader, the epitome, if you ask me, of Black Woman Magic, a thought leader in the DEI space, recently recognized in Forbes, author of five books, about to be six, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, a trailblazer having been honored by the formal workplace inclusion, profiles in diversity, chamber of commerce, and many, many more. The boss, my boss, so y'all can only imagine how much pressure I'm feeling right now. The president and founder of the Winters Group, Mary Frances Winters. I think we should like edit in some drum roll or something here. (laughs) (laughs) Mary Frances, super excited to have you on the Inclusion Solution Live. Well, thank you for that. I I think we should have a drum roll or something for that introduction. That was that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Brittany. I told the folks on um, the our intro episode that this has been a long time coming, and so we're just really excited that the Inclusion Solution Lab is now an extension of uh, how we continue to engage in, facilitate, and bring bold, inclusive conversations to the world. To get us kicked off, I know I gave my introduction, my perspective, short bio on Mary Frances, Mary Frances, but if you could just share a little bit more about yourself, those aspects of your identity that influence who you are and how you show up in and beyond this work, we'll get started there and then jump into our conversation. Thanks so much, Brittany. Yes, this has been a long time coming and I'm glad that we are doing this and offering this topic as our first topic. I have been doing this work now for a long time. It seems like all of my life, actually, since I was five years old. And I'll talk about that in in a little bit. But um, as the Winters Group CEO, for almost 36 years now um, that I have been doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And it really identifies who I am because as a Black woman, we talk about our I ams and our identity. And of course, they are totally intersectional. And there are many identities that I claim But for this podcast, I really want to focus on my blackness, my womanness, and my generation um, as a a baby boomer, because I think that those are the three that right now for me um, are manifesting and showing up most. As a black person, it's been since I was five years old, because I didn't know I was black until I was five. And somebody called me the N-word in kindergarten. And that's when I realized that, oh, (laughs) I'm different than everybody Mm -hmm. else. So maybe Mm -hmm. I was clueless at five. But anyway, I just thought we were just all the same, right? (laughs) So since I was five years old, uh, I've I've known that people might be mean to you or might treat you differently uh, because of, of, of what you look like. So those are the identities that I bring. And my passion for this work is because as I um, get older and I see folks coming into the workplace and I have conversations with people who find me on LinkedIn, younger people who want just talk about their experiences. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're having the same experience that I had 30 mm-hmm. years ago. 
And so it just, I just have to um, be about this work to support the, the ideas that, in fact, the world is different for us. The world is different for Black people. The world is different for women. The world is different for people who um, come from different um, gender identities. And um, there's a lot right now around denying that. And so mm-hmm. it's really important for me to bring voice and help people bring their voices to the concerns and issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so thank you for sharing that, Mary Frances. For your post in particular and for the folks who have not read it, um, Mary Frances entitled it The Pain of Internalized Oppression and specifically focused on race and color. So some of those messages that um, you've internalized around race and color. Um, what was this exercise like or this reflection like for you, Mary Frances? And I'm particularly interested in why you use the qualifier term pain to describe your reflection yeah because it hurts uh, a lot of times it, it hurts um to not be accepted or not knowing if you're going to be accepted it hurts when you uh feel like you have to get angry or call somebody out because you're in a store and somebody doesn't you know doesn't recognize you or takes the person who is behind you before i mean just the little you know just living while black uh can be really painful and part of the pain comes from Am I being too sensitive? Well, what was that just about? <laughs> you know, did that have something to do with me being black or did, or was that just like, just, just forget it. And so it's even painful to have to go through that kind of mental exercise, that kind of self-talk um, to, to understand, um, you know, what might be going on. So that's why I say that it's painful. And I think also for children, you know, I'm thinking back to my experience when I was five years old, you know, what we see happening um, with our children in in schools where there's so much bias around um, brown and black kids who don't get the acknowledgement or the recognition for their intelligence or the assumption is that they don't have intelligence or that their parents don't care. And uh, my daughter-in-law does research uh, on this and and she's done some research with kids and they say they know. I mean, they they know when their teacher is treating them differently. They know uh, when they're getting um, an assumption that they're not listening or that they don't care or that they're not smart enough. And so it, it hurts and it is very painful. It's so, and so, so since you bring that up, there was this, um, there was this essay that I read by James Bowen a couple months ago and it was like a talk to teachers and in it, he was, same thing you're saying, was talking about how children learn more about the system and so perhaps they're not calling it racism and inequity or like you know oppression but learn just by experiencing right and so he talked about a child who experiences a white neighborhood versus their own and he talked about a black child their black neighborhood which is um uh, perhaps of a lower socioeconomic uh background and how just by that that child experiencing a neighborhood that is perceivably a majority white being better and nicer and better schools and cleaner and experiencing theirs, which is very different. They're internalizing, they're learning, they're learning these systems without even necessarily, you know, maybe naming it as a system, but learning and internalizing it. And it's becoming a part of who they are and like part of the work is supporting them and like unpacking that. And so it's it's interesting to hear you say, um, you realize this at five, because there are some people, you know, we've done labs uh, where some 
people and, you know, predominantly white people say, I never even had to think about race. Um, or, you know, there's even broader, like, social messages or norms now that would say, oh, kids don't see color. How many times have I been in a session where I wish everyone could be like our kids and not see or understand color? And I'm like, huh. I don't know if that's oh the case. well you know well and we know from research that they do right? so people who so people who are familiar with the black doll experiment experiment mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. that that kids absolutely see the white yes. dolls uh, over and over again right? if, I'm not going to go go into it here but if you don't know about it um, Kenneth Clark back in the 40s a psychologist a black psychologist and his wife did this experiment uh, where they showed the kids black dolls and white dolls and every single time almost the black kids these are preschool kids said that the black, that the white dolls were better than prettier than smarter than the black mm-hmm. ones. And then somebody repeated the same experiment back mm-hmm. like re- more recently with the same result. Mm-hmm. And there were black children who, and this is such exactly. a good example of internalized oppression, like a black children who exactly. preferred exactly. Like, the white dolls. These were all black um, children who preferred. Mm-hmm, yes. mm-hmm. And so that kind of gets me to my second question. So for the folks who haven't read the post or maybe for the, 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 the folks who read it um, some time ago, could you just talk a little bit more about some of the experiences you shared um, or perhaps others that have influenced some of the harmful messages or biases you learned and internalized around race and color? Yeah, so I grew up in a household where, you know, I realize now that that um, my mother was really, you know, prejudiced um, against black folks. Um, she's black, but she she, um, you know, would say to me things like, um, you know, act your age, not your color, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which was this message that my color was something, you know, uh, negative or, or bad. Um, I had, you know, colorism. Uh, was something because I was lighter than lighter skinned than and I was you know called high yellow and people girls wanted to fight me because I thought I was you know cuter than them you know I didn't even like what you know I didn't even know what they were talking about and so you know some from a very early age um the the idea of color the idea that that there that there are difference you know this whole idea if uh if you're white stick around if if you're brown you're, you're all right if you're black get back uh, type of, mm-hmm. and there was even a song about that. So within our own race, you know, the internalized oppression and uh, around uh, feeling that uh, even though lighter skin was supposed to be better, that wasn't what, that's not how I felt it. I felt it as being something that was excluding me from being a total part of. And as a child, it's just very hard to comprehend. You don't have the skills and the education and the the, the developed brain to be able to uh, do anything else but to feel the pain, and that's why mm-hmm. I called it the. That's why I called it the pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, in what ways, you know, have you? We talk about in this work like reflection, things we look at ourselves being a journey. And so, when you think about um, all that you've learned and how you've continuously like reflected on the messages you've learned, in what ways have we have, have these, or do these show up in how you understand the world today? Um, or even in our work? Yeah, so I, I think that um, when I do my own self-reflection, um, and you wrote about you know the angry Black woman, I think mm-hmm. that for me it manifests oftentimes as anger as well. I can see myself in settings where I perhaps will have an outburst. And people will look at me and like, uh-oh, what's wrong with Mary Frances? Or, you know, she, she's, well, that was inappropriate. And so times where I can't control the pain, if you will. And so it just, it manifests, um, 
it, it manifests as, as an as an outburst, as a visible kind of outburst. Um, I think other times it helps me with my writing. And you mentioned the books we're going to talk about in a little bit. But it helps me to chronicle these experiences and um, what they do to, you know, the mind, the body and the, you know, and the spirit. Um, uh, I think that in the work, uh, I can empathize more with the different identity groups. For example, today I've been working on summarizing some focus groups that we did for a client and in looking at how the different um, segments in this focus groups, we did focus groups with white men, we did focus groups with women of color, we did focus groups with white women. And was was interesting in this particular one that the white men recognized their privilege. They said, yeah, we recognize that we have the privilege. Women of color, you know, talked about um, the fact that they're seen as intimidating uh, and people are afraid of them. And so I can rec- I can resonate with that. And so hopefully you can go back to the client and say, you know, this is real. And how and that's why we work with you know our bold inclusive conversations that the first step is to be able to talk about the reality of this and not dismiss it or denigrate it as being you know um, something that you're making up. Um, so I think that those are the, some of the kinds of ways that um, that I deal with it. I try to be um, I try to be someone who you know, as a listening ear for those, um, I, you know, I get a lot of requests sort of just randomly from on LinkedIn and whatnot. Um, I know who you are. Would you just be willing to talk with me? And I'll do that sometimes. I don't even tell you about that, Brittany. I don't even tell Marisha. I'll just, sometimes I'll just do that. I'll just reach out and say, yeah, give me a call. And, and these are women of color, like who just want to talk, who just want to mm-hmm. say that, you know, it's, and that, so that's why it's painful. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's painful. So I think those are the ways to deal, but you mentioned earlier systems. And I think, you know, we can tell our stories, our individual stories, but until we get to the systemic aspects mm-hmm. of this, which we haven't been able to do in 400 years and 50 years or how many, whatever marker you want to put at the time frame that you start, we haven't dealt with the systems and that's what we have to undo. And that's all related to power. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I think that for the time being, we're putting band-aids on it. We're trying to help people um, through things like self-care and things like taking care of your, you know, your own well-being, you know, being, being, not being hard on yourself, being intentional about recognizing that, hey, this is real for me. I did have this experience. It's not in my, it's not in my head. I'm not being overly sensitive and I need somebody that I can just talk to about it so that I can continue to be whole, so that I can continue to go on and wake up tomorrow morning and not have to call in black. Mm-hmm. That's so, um, that systems part, and I can't give it away. And so, um, folks, I have had the opportunity to connect with everyone on the team who wrote about their narrative. And so there's so much in my head that I can't give away because I don't know when you're gonna, when, when you're gonna hear from them. But in one of the other episodes, we bring up this um, point of, systems and you know what systems they don't come out of nowhere right systems of inequity or oppression don't just pop out of nowhere they're influenced by like people they're influenced by people who hey by the way Ray Francis said it hold power hold privilege perhaps um, have lack of awareness around the ways in which their behaviors norms how they see and understand their other how that influences the policies they make or the practices they put out or what they sort of normalize and no one's immune to that, right? And so one of the things that um, I actually quoted during the intro episode, Mary Francis, the whole 
preaching to the choir thing, right? Um, preaching to the choir and how we sometimes need like, you know, new tunes. And um, you mentioned in your, um, in your introduction or in your childhood experience that even uh, your mom, you know, as a black woman held like prejudice and, and sort of narrative or message or biases, you know, against, against uh, um, her own group. And I think that's powerful because to some extent, that's what this episode or this series is all about. All of us do, right? All of us do. And it's really about holding ourselves accountable to thinking about it, challenging, like constantly reflecting, thinking on it, figuring out how it makes us feel and all of that. Um, one of the things that comes up for me when I think about internalized oppression, specifically as it relates to Blackness and the Black experience is this um, whole notion of like respectability politics, right? And so um, for the folks on, or the folks who are listening, you know, we like to define as we go. And so if you aren't familiar with the term, um, respectability politics typically used in equity, social justice spaces, but it's this notion that if, you know, black people, people of color, but specifically black people govern themselves, a certain way and so a certain way that appeal to the dominant group be it in their names how they speak how they dress how they wear their hair then they'd be more deserving of access or better or fair treatment it can kind of be liking to this notion of like assimilation you know well you would get ahead if only you did this um and one could say that respectability politics sure while it's used, you know, broadly, uh, you know, as a way to um, minimize or use broadly by dominant people who are, are in dominant groups, it's also internalized. Those very same messages around assimilation and respectability politics are internalized by the people or by groups that it seeks to oppress, you know, Black people. And so down to how we see what is professional or how we see who is desirable or worthy. And so Mary Frances, I wanted to just get your thoughts on the term and the, the work around um, respectability politics and specifically the role of DI practitioners in really challenging, right? Challenging ourselves, holding ourselves accountable to not perpetuating these fairly like subtle covert dynamics. Yeah, so I know that the term is not, not necessarily new. It's been being used for some time. Um, so I would question, you know, who's defining respectability? And we know who's defining respectability. Mm -hmm. uh, the dominant group, you know, the dominant narrative uh, defines respectability. Uh, so early in my career, I was wearing a short Afro. But this is back um, in the late 70s. Uh, I've always pretty much worn my hair natural. Uh, one of my colleagues, wasn't even my boss, one of my colleagues came into my office one day and said, will your hair grow? And I was like, yeah. He says, well, you ought to let it. You know, in other words, your hairdo, your hairstyle is not respectable. It doesn't fit, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't fit the norm. So how do you think I went home that night? You know, um, I, I didn't change my hairstyle, but it was, it was painful. So I think that these kinds of terms like respectability politics, I, I think that I don't, I don't subscribe to them. I think it's just another way of keeping those who have already been oppressed and marginalized, oppressed and marginalized, because again, uh, in my corporate experience, and even now as a, you know, uh, as the owner of a company, I think about 
where I'm going to go and mm -hmm. uh, what I'm looking like and how it's going to be perceived. And so I wear my hair now in some a style called sister locks. And I never wear the sister locks straight so that they just look like, like quote, dreadlocks. I curl them so that they look more, quote, respectable. Mm. Um, and I think about that. Oh, I got to wash my hair. Oh, I got to curl my hair because I've got to go mm. such and such a place. Um, I um, had on some uh, pale blue nail polish one time and I got feedback from the client that, um, you know, Mary Frances came in, in blue nail polish and uh, that's not professional. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. To be honest with you, it was my first time. I, I, I just drifted away. You know, I'm baby boomer, so I'm into the pinks and the reds. You know, but I drifted away this one time. I said, "Oh, you know, they're wearing all kind of colors these days. Let me wear blue." <laughs> and I got called for wearing wearing blue. So who who's determining? And how? So for me, respect. Let me just flip the script here. For me, respectability politics is for us as a people. I'm talking about black people right now that we find that self-respect, however, and whatever that looks like for us. So respectability politics is for me, respecting myself and um, developing norms for me that fit my values, that fit my religious beliefs, that fit, and it may not fit what somebody, you know, what somebody else believes. I don't like saggy pants. I don't like black boys wearing saggy pants. I don't like that, but that's me. I don't like it, okay? But I, that, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to respect a young black man that I might encounter who has saggy pants, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So I cannot like it, but it doesn't mean that I don't respect. So I think respect, I, uh, yeah, I, so I do like respectability politics if you define it in my way. Take it, yeah, taking it back, yeah. I, so, and it's, yeah, that is, um, I, and I, I think it is uh, so real to say, you know what, there are things, in, and you say it often in our work, that we accept but don't necessarily have to agree right and it's it's agree with and um inequity happens when we start to ascribe value to because i don't like it or because it's not my norm because i don't think it is quote unquote professional um i'm now gonna ascribe value to it that it is the other right and that turns into again like systems um what is your what is what are your thoughts on the role of DEI practitioners and pushing back on assimilation. So I ask, I'll give you some context. I was watching, uh, and maybe this ties into the generational piece too. I don't know, but I was watching a live where a um, black millennial woman, she was talking about a mentor of hers um, who she hadn't seen in years. And um, so I guess prior to her reconnecting with the, the mentor, she was wearing, you know, she had permed or straight hair. And so when she reconnected with the mentor, she had kind of decided to go natural, had her curly fro. She was sharing that she was going on an interview. Um, and the woman, who was also a black woman, but, but older, said, well, make sure you do something with that hair of yours. And she shared in her life, like, how taken aback she was by that, because this is someone who's an advocate and someone who she considers a mentor and someone who, you know, and... Her response to her mentor was, well, I don't know if I want to work there if they won't accept me for my hair. And so I wonder, just your perspective, you know, that's a kind of individual level experience that I'm certainly is, I'm sure isn't one off, right? But your perspective on what or how advocates, change agents, um, you know, people who are doing this work, like how they can, uh, what their role is rather in challenging and holding ourselves accountable. It's not perpetuating, right? Assimilation 
or expectations around assimilation in the work that we're doing or even how we're bringing others along? Yeah, so I think that many people um, in this work feel forced to conform to the systems, feel forced to uphold the very systems that we're trying to dismantle. They are oftentimes, in a, find themselves in a, what, what's the phrase, a rock in a hard place mm-hmm. because they need their job, their livelihood. Um, they have attained that role because of their you know, knowledge, expertise, and you know, the chief diversity officer now. By the same token, they go to the CEO and the CEO, you know, in the discussion with the CEO, the CEO says, this is what I want. This is what works here. And so um, the chief diversity officer can say, yes, but it doesn't work for everybody. And so this is where you get into this sort of how much do we assimilate and how much do we really want to change the systems? So to be a little bit radical, the only way that systems have been dismantled in our world ever is through bloodshed. And I'm not suggesting bloodshed. Look at what's going on in Hong Kong right now where they're trying to dis- dis- dismantle uh, a-, a system. Um, you know, look at, look at through our history. And so systems do not get dismantled without some kind of protest, some kind of struggle, some kind of fight. And so in organizations that are nicely self-contained and, you know, you've got your hallowed halls and all of those kinds of things. And we're in those hallowed halls a lot with the marble and you're walking through... Um, they're, they're insulated in, in some ways and their, their structures are just so entrenched that I feel that it is almost impossible unless something happens. And that's why change in organizations has oftentimes happened as a result of a class action lawsuit mm-hmm. or employees mm-hmm. walking out and protesting. Um, I know, you know, um, I was still in, not that bad, I was still in school back then, but in, in high school, but in the 60s, um, with the corporations with the riots and whatnot, and the, my first corporation that I worked for was Eastman Kodak Company in Rochester, New York. They had all sorts of riots. They had all sorts of things happening uh, that made Eastman Kodak Company then say that they were going to take affirmative action and start to hire people of color. And I, I benefited from that, actually, uh, as a hire. As a matter of fact, they begged me to come work for them. I, was, I went with a friend. She was going to apply for a summer job. I already had a summer job. The interviewer just kept coming over to me. I said, don't you want a summer job, too? Don't you want to say, no, no, I'm going to go home for this summer. But they begged me to come and work for them because they were under this, they were under this pressure. So systems that work for dominant groups, why do they have an incentive to change those systems? I'm just being real right now. We talk about power and privilege. What's the incentive to share that power? What's the incentive to recognize that privilege and want to give up that privilege? What's the real incentive to do so? So, and, and again, without giving it away, without giving it away, it's, it's um, we will, y'all, and this is kind of a teaser as we get to the end of our conversation, as we get to the end of the, the episode, really unpack how, when uh, Travis Jones is going to unpack how whiteness and power can be to the detriment of those who experience it. That's just a teaser for y'all to like, to stay, to stay on. But Mary Francis, that is so, um, so, so, so true. We're coming up on the end and there are a few questions that I want to get in. Um, one, you know, this was a, obviously a reflective exercise for you um, and the team who engaged in it um, certainly has been eye-opening for me. Why, from your perspective, is this depth of reflection, critical thinking, you know, really interrogating oneself so important to you 
and the work that we do. Because, you know, we hear all the time, it's like, oh, let me get to the action, tell us what to do. Like, why is this part of, you know, demystifying internalized oppression, unpacking our ideals and identity? Why is this so important? So recognizing my internalized oppression helps me to recognize what um, some of my insecurities are and, or may be going into, you know, situations, you know, uh, uh, am I good enough? Um, you know, the imposter syndrome that sometimes, you know, comes up um, for me. I'm like, where did that come from? But it comes up. And so I have to deal with it. And so it's, it's like um, talking to myself, we're going to talk about my next book, inclusive conversations. And one of the chapters in that book is first talk to yourself and learn how to have these conversations with yourself to work mm-hmm. through them. And psychologists say talking out loud to yourself is really important when you're, when you're trying to do that. So I think that you come to um, situations much stronger when you've done that self work, when you've done that self talk. And I think that perhaps dominant group folks don't do that enough because they're in the dominant group. What do they have to think about? There's, there's not a, there's not a trigger for them. There's not a trigger oftentimes that would make them go to this deeper level of interrogation. So unless they're willing to be an ally and learn how to be an ally, unless they're willing to take this seriously, unless they're willing to take collective responsibility, which I also talk about, you know, in, in the, uh, in the new book, unless they're willing to do that, they might not be, um, the spark might not come for them to go deeper. Mm-hmm. 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 We talk about uh, we talked about in another series on the inclusion solution how much of a veil sort of being part of dominant groups um, and power can be in this work. And I would offer just for the listener, I know, I know we have a um, are going to have a, a diverse range of listeners, but thinking about how. Um, your different dominant group identities, right, can influence not only um, the uh, messages, norms that you, um, that perhaps come out in the interpersonal, right, but the intrapersonal. And so one of the things I read, I'm not going to stay here long, but it just came to me about the respectability politics things was that a lot of times it was more so perpetuated by sort of the black elite, right? And so black people who sure experienced racial oppression, racism, but hey, also experienced sort of social, socioeconomic status, right? Like there's articles out there that'll unpack respectability politics and like um, internalized oppression in sort of like the modern day black elite, one of which was like, Bill Cosby, but we won't even go down. Yeah, I read it. I read it. I read it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, um, but you did. I want to make sure we have time to talk a little bit more, especially um, since you. Well, let me uh, let me just let me just say something about that with the respectability politics. And so the black elite. So sometimes it's like, look, this is what I had to do to make it. So if you want to make it, this is what you got to do too. Yeah, you know, I couldn't wear my pants hanging down. I couldn't wear um, natural hair. You know, I had to do this. I had to do this. I had to do this because in essence, I had to I had to assimilate is what is what they're basically saying. And so 35 years ago, I decided that I'm not going to assimilate. I'm going to leave the corporate world and I'm going to, you know, be able to have my own voice. Now, I'm not I'm not denigrating anybody who's chosen to because we need people inside of organizations as well. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. All I'm saying is, is that we have to recognize that when the folks are inside an organization, they are sometimes limited in what they can and the change that they can really mm-hmm. make uh, because you got to be with them. You know, they've got to accept you first 
before they'll allow your voice to be heard? And how do I get accepted? And many times the only way that somebody of color can get accepted is if they think, oh, you're just like me. You're not like one of them. You're more like me. Mm -hmm. That's so, I was just reading um, this art, this uh, study that unpacked the success of, well, like, uh, uh, took a look at the excess of Black leaders and obviously predominantly white institutions or corporations and um, there were two factors that they associated with effectiveness. And one was effectiveness specifically around like equity and inclusion and obviously business success. And one was sort of like outgroup, the extent to which um, the outgroup. And so in this case, uh, white people like saw themselves in that leader, right? And so their proximity to them mm-hmm. and that that leader's level of self-understanding, self-pride, self-awareness, um, um, sort of like, like like really being grounded, right? And I thought it was such a, a compelling study because it held space for like the both and, right? Because I think a lot of times we think that we can't go in spaces and, and you, know, un, you know, be ourselves or be authentic and be successful. And this study was essentially saying, that and kind of like what you were were getting at with like kind of taking back the respectable like authenticity looks a certain way to me and hey I can be authentic without necessarily being oppressive or colluding you know what I mean or Mm -hmm. I can figure out ways to we say it in our work all the time adapt versus you know kind of like just assimilate for survival which is so different and I get that get it that's a whole nother like episode um but that's what came up for me um and I know Very we have great. to go, but one more thing. And it shows yeah. up, it shows up in black leaders such as, and I'm gonna call his name out, but but such as black leaders like Ben Carson. He's on like, the like they called him out in the study, man, right? Oh, they, did? The one, they okay. call him like a co-opted lead. It's like I gotta send it to you. Right. Okay. <laughs> so well, that's, he, said it. Okay. he was like on the low he was like on the low self ID, high like out group. Uh yeah, it was really interesting. Right. It's so funny you said that. Yeah. <laughs> He's in there. <laughs> Um, folks, what we'll probably do is just include a link, just so you, we're, we're at least giving you context, so more context than what we're talking about, a link to the book. Um, speaking of books, Mary Frances has two coming out, and so if you wouldn't mind, Mary Frances, sharing with the, the folks on um, who are listening a uh, little bit more about um, what you're writing, and even like connecting it back to what we've shared so far around this self-work, pain, identity, all that good stuff. Absolutely. So um, somebody might say, well, why do you say she have two books coming out? Because I was only going to have one book come out, but the publisher said, wow, there's just too much in here and it's two books. Okay. So one book is called Inclusive Conversations, Fostering Equity, Empathy, and Belonging Across Difference. And the points that I make in that book, because we, we still are not having inclusive conversations. We call them at the Winners Group bold inclusive conversations. And I lay out some conditions that are necessary to have the conversations. Everybody wants me to write a book that says, give me the five steps for inclusive conversations. I can't give you the five steps because it's more complex than that. And this gets at the systems. Unless we dig deeper into the systems that are precluding the inclusive conversations, I can give you five steps, but it's just a Band-Aid and that wound is not going to heal. And when you take that Band-Aid off, you're going to scratch it again and we're going to be right back to where we are. So in that book, what I try to do is I try to go a lot deeper about what some of these conditions are. And one of the conditions is, I'm just going to go into one, is that inclusive conversations have to be equitable conversations. So you've got to have a sense 
of, of you have to establish a sense of equity in in the conversation. You're going to be talking. Let's say there's a black woman who wants to talk about her career or lack of career upward mobility with her boss, and her boss is a white male. So he has power um, because he is her. He has positional power because he is her boss. But he also has perhaps identity power as well as a white male in a white male dominated organization. So in order to have that conversation, what I'm saying is is that he has to acknowledge that first. He has to first acknowledge, I am in a power position here, and let's talk about how those power dynamics are going to play out in this conversation. So let's not just jump into the conversation and assume that we have equity, assume that this Black woman can come to the table and talk to this boss about why hasn't she been promoted. And then I talk about the self-work, that the self-reflection um, that needs to be needs to be done. The way, why, haven't she, why hasn't she been promoted? Gee, who are the last five people that I promoted? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just, that's just a glimpse at what that book is about. And it is practical as well. So I do give examples of what the conversations might look like. I give examples of what the conditions have to be and how you talk about those conditions, you know, before the conversation happens. Are these conditions present? And then you get into the conversations. So that book um, will come out July. And the next book, which I'm really excited about, and the publisher is really excited about too, is called Black Fatigue. I have been hearing so much from people in in the settings that I'm in, particularly Black people, particularly Black millennials. We're exhausted. We're exhausted with this struggle. We're exhausted having to teach white people what it's like to not have equity, to, to, not, be, to not be treated uh, equitably uh, in organizations. And I was like, wow, millennials are tired, you know? Uh, <laughs> that used to be a thing, y'all. <laughs> I know, I would joke about it. I don't joke oh, about like, it anymore. Yeah, we- <laughs> I don't joke about it anymore. I, don't, I, used to say, I used to say, y'all are too young to be tired. You're 25 <laughs> years old. They didn't appreciate that, so I don't say that anymore, right? So I acknowledge and respect that, hey, no matter how old you are, it's tiring, you know, that's part of the pain because, you know, mm-hmm. pain and exhaustion, I mean, all, all those things are, are, are um, you know, are connected. And so whenever I said to anybody, I'm thinking about writing this book called Black Fatigue, everybody would say, oh, you got to write it. Oh, mm-hmm. it's so important. And so how does Black Fatigue play out in our criminal justice system? How does it play out in our educational systems? How does it play out in our workplaces? How does it play out in all of the socioeconomic um, spheres that, that we are in and housing and, you know, and all of these things. So this book is going to explore why it's just really tiring, you know, about the black tax and we, we, you know, we pay more, we struggle more to, we struggle more just to live every single day, just to live our lives every single day. And guess what? It makes us sicker, physically sicker. This is why we have uh, higher incidences of diabetes and da, 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 da. and infant mortality rates are higher, even for, middle-class black women who are in professional roles. So I think that it's important. And, and, you know, we all know, black people all know that there's black fatigue. Uh Um, There was a concern that white people might not read the book because it's entitled Black Fatigue, Black Fatigue, (laughs) How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. But I'm going to make sure that folks know that this book is not just for black people, because there are solutions. And the solutions, Brittany, are going to be at the systems level. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do at the systems level to dismantle? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And some of it is going to be that those who have the power have to be willing to, you know, we're not seeing that in, in our politics today. So when we see things like uh, a whole political party staying together mm-hmm. just because they're a part of that political party Hello. and not based on morals and values, 
I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we can even make progress if that's the case, if we stay connected just because of because we're a part of that in that in group. And we won't break away when we see things that are inequitable. I don't know. But that's what I'm going to recommend, that we have to be able. And I'm going to look at the connections to the systems, how housing is connected to um to the workplace and is connected to all of these other kinds of kinds of um, aspects and um, how the systems are set up to disadvantage black people in particular. And this book is about black fatigue. It's not about uh, multicultural uh, because I think oftentimes in our diversity, equity, inclusion space, when you start to talk about blackness by itself, mm-hmm. you get pushback because we say, well, what about this group? Well, what about that group? And I apologize in the preface by saying I am sure that other groups probably are experiencing pain and and exhaustion uh, and fatigue as well. And you may be able to get something, you know, from this book from that. But I really just want to focus on how it manifests for black people, because I think that there are nuances and idiosyncrasies that are unique to us. Mm -hmm. Huge, 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 huge. We are excited. I was excited, y'all, when. Mary Francis shared that she'd be writing on Black fatigue. And I think it is so powerful just to call out, like even in your intro, to just say like, this is, um, you know, I'm centering this discussion, this dialogue on my Blackness, the Black experience, and to do so and be comfortable doing so um, um, even unapologetically. There was a study a couple weeks ago that came out, Center Town Innovation, that talked about Black being Black in corporate America. And one of the things that the study found was um, many of the gaps, right, around diversity, equity, or what was sort of the stagnant uh, the, or lack thereof of progress is around disparities that exist between Black people and white people. And so like that gap is even greater. And they offered in the recommendations, hey, a focus more on or, or a stride towards equity or more racially just workplace would be honoring, focusing, developing systems that center Blackness that get to these unique experiences, one of which is going to be, um, one of which is definitely Black fatigue, especially with all this stuff around this like race and identity trauma and oh, it's so connected and you said it, it's, it's so, it's so connected. This has been a wonderful conversation. Hopefully you all have already downloaded the reflection guide. We say it over and over again. You just don't learn by listening and experiencing you learn by reflecting on those experiences and, and what you heard. And so definitely would suggest that you download the reflection guide on our site. Think about Mary Francis's re- reflection and responses um, and think through what aligns with your experience. You know, what was perhaps new to you, challenging for you to understand and why might that be? Um, think about those groups that you are part of, right? What are some of uh, aspects of your identity where you have internalized negative messages. Um, what experiences have contributed to that? And then moreover, how does it show up in your day-to-day world? How does it show up in your work? What can you do? Think about the ways in which you can continue to challenge yourself um, and hold you, hold yourself to countering those negative messages and biases um, in how you're thinking and how you engage with others. But then moreover, as Mary Francis said, in the systems and policies and practices that we put in the place. That is all we had for you today. Mary Francis, any parting thoughts you wanna share with folks before we sign off? I just wanna thank 
um, the listeners for tuning in and um, hearing what we have to say. And I hope that it will spark something in you to take some action that is in support of dismantling racist and inequitable systems. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Folks, as usual, we end our sessions and of course, our uh, podcast, the Inclusion Solution Live with our commitment to live inclusively. I'm gonna read it, gonna ask that you listen and then take this with you as you go on. I commit to be intentional and living inclusively. I commit to spending more time getting to know myself and understanding my culture. It is in understanding myself that I am better positioned to understand others. I will acknowledge that I don't know what I don't know, but I will not use what is unconscious as an excuse. I will be intentional in exposing myself to difference. If I don't know, I'll ask. If I am asked, I will assume positive intent. Most importantly, I will accept my responsibility in increasing my own knowledge and understanding. I commit to speaking up and speaking out, even when I am not directly impacted, for there is no such thing as neutrality in the quest for equity, justice, and inclusion. I will strive to accept and not just tolerate respect, even if I don't agree and be curious, not judgmental. I commit to pausing and listening. I will be empathetic to the experiences and perspectives of my others and will use my privilege positively and get comfortable with my own discomfort. I commit to knowing, getting, and doing better than I did yesterday, keeping in mind my commitment to live inclusively is a journey, not a destination. Until next time, folks. <laughs>